You're tuning in to the Replatform podcast hosted by myself, James Gerd, and my co-host, Paul Rogers. Hello, mate. How you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, it's Monday. Let's start the week with another cracking episode. So let, let's set up what we're talking about, and then we'll just ramble inanely at everybody as we usually do. Um, thanks for tuning back into all our regular listeners, and if it's your first time, we hope you enjoy it. We drop an episode every week. We'd love you to subscribe to get new alerts and we'd also love a like on YouTube, Spotify or Apple if you enjoy the content. So today we're talking about what does a modern tech stack look like for e-commerce and why does it look like this? Now we are, we're focused on like brands, direct consumer, SMEs. We're not looking at large enterprise that have their own engineering functions because that is very much a different space and there's so much variance there. So we're looking at how e-commerce the modern e-commerce teams are using e-commerce technology and what else they're plugging in around it to achieve the functionality. So the key things we're going to cover are um, the move towards API-driven systems and how that's changing the tech people use, the evolution from all-in-one to best-in-class, uh, which are the most common third-party systems that people are using and how for like SaaS and PaaS, and by that we mean software as a service or platform as a service, uh, and the role of middleware uh, at ERPs, etc. So we're going to work from the back the front of the solution stack um does that have i introduced that correctly or have i just wobbled on uh, i think yeah no i think that's it really isn't it and it's just kind of like an open discussion around like you know how or like where the world's going and like some of the trends we've seen by our clients i guess yeah cool and uh myself and paul normally have loads and loads of detailed notes but we decided we're going to just you know completely ad-lib this and see how we get on we're going to base it on our own experience but also from people we know in the industry and what they're doing with technology i think the key situation is this is many organizations have, have moved away from a mindset point of view from the one source of truth platform where you buy into a platform you go back five or so years you buy a magenta you buy a, a demama or a salesforce commerce cloud as it is now a hybris and you expect the e-commerce platform to do almost everything it's the application it's got all the logic the business rules, it compiles the code, it generates the HTML for the front end, you know, it does some of the order management, da, da, da. you know, people then try and hack it to, to build out things like BI on it. Well, actually, the 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 e-commerce and marketing technology um, world has moved on so rapidly, there are so many best-in-class tools in each of these specialist capability areas that actually the efficiency of trying to hack your e-commerce platform to achieve some of the things that it's not designed to do isn't that sensible? And you end up spending a lot more money in development and a lot more effort in maintenance. So increasingly, um, we're seeing businesses that are, are defining what e-commerce means. So basically, e-commerce is about managing commerce pages, product pages, product list pages. It's managing the basket, the checkout. It's those selling functionality capabilities. And then often everything else can be done by other systems. In fact, I know, I know Paul, we've talked about this before, like sometimes even e-commerce is just literally the shopping basket and checkout, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of, um, over the last couple of years, particularly with the SaaS platforms, it feels like people are a lot more willing to kind of work with a broader set of technologies and kind of benefit from like smaller, best in class kind of solutions. Like, um, and I feel like it's got quite, and obviously there's pros and cons to this approach and, you know, there's variables where maybe it doesn't scale quite as well, but, you know, in like a good example is in the Shopify world, um, you'd use a third party for a wish list, which seems like so granular, um, but equally like that, uh, kind of app is like the feature set's really strong you know they're only focusing on that they support everything like some like advanced sharing you know guest wish list they'll integrate directly with your ESP um, you know they're just constantly adding new functionality in that little niche area and um, 
I do definitely like that. And I think that kind of like, yeah, just small SaaS solutions kind of integrating via APIs is, uh, and also like amongst the ecosystem as well, um, has been a really good thing for brands and merchants because it just makes things more manageable. People yeah. get, um, yeah, a lot more functionality that way as well. Yeah, and I find it interesting because I think culturally some businesses struggle to adapt to a, oh, well, hang on a minute, so we need that that platform on top on that tool and and we're doing it through the API, but the platform's not doing it, but I've got this extra layer. And some people find that a really hard shift to make and they see it as added complexity and risk versus actually this is modern architecture and actually a lot of businesses that scaled really successfully are doing this. And I, I think the important discussion that I see and I try and encourage people to have now is, is what are you buying an e-commerce platform for? Not how can we make our e-commerce platform do you know, returns management, order management, business intelligence. It's what is the role of the e-com platform and how does it enable those additional capabilities? Because trying to shift away from thinking it will do everything to how does it enable, what's the other tooling you need, and therefore what is the role that e-commerce plays with that additional tooling to achieve your business functionality? And do you mind as long as the functionality is achieved in a cost-effective way? So I think that's important. So with that in mind, let's let's dive into number one. I think this is a really important question. I'll let you go first. This is how have API first setups changed like e-commerce thinking in the e-commerce stack? Because um, it is a mind shift away from actually everything um, is managed within the e-commerce platform. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I kind of touched on it a minute ago, really. I think um, it just, I mean, that's kind of like the first step for building an ecosystem. I think the majority of the platforms out there now um, that are going API first, you know, are trying to encourage all of the tech partners to build out integrations, you know, build out, um, yeah, kind of functionality around the platform. So I think that's, that's a big part of it. And I feel like nowadays, that's the benefits of that are just getting clearer and clearer to brands because it allows you to do things faster. You know, the costs are much lower, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I also think, it allows people to be kind of like, you know, more agile, um, you know, that you end up uh, thinking, I guess, like you look at, I've obviously worked a lot over the years with Magento and some of the other platforms that are maybe um, not kind of as standardized as some of these kind of API driven platforms. And I think there's a lot of benefits from like a maintenance perspective. I think it's nicer to work from a development, from a developer perspective as well. Um yeah, it feels like uh, overall, like the benefits are mainly around kind of agility and um, yeah, simplifying things a bit more. Yeah, I, I think that's key, and also it's it's that abstraction of logic fee. Because if you go back to a traditional way an e-commerce system worked, is you have all of the the core application and the, fu- uh, and the functionality in that e-commerce system. You have the data, and you have the logic that defines how that data is used and what functionalities are able to be executed off the back of that. And if you want to change how any of that data is presented or works, uh, like wish list, if you want to change the flow in a wish list, you have to change the logic in the core application to enable that. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Whereas if the data is abstracted via an API and you're using a modern headless CMS or a front end, you can change that flow without needing to change anything in the back end of the application you just draw the data from it and pass the data back and i think that's that's been quite a evolution and also again back to those mindset shifts of people realizing that you're not constrained and you know they you used to have to go into rfps and go like how exactly does it work to understand it versus like how do you want it to work and how can i get the data so you change the questioning as well in modern e-commerce stacks 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it just gives you more flexibility. Like I'm obviously I've been working a lot with Shopify recently and um, I've, I'm a big advocate of just like taking things out of the platform. Um, like visual merchandising is a good example where like you've got, if you have multiple stores and you end up kind of, you know, using the Shopify APIs, building your kind of uh, sort order and then pushing it into different stores, it's a lot more efficient. You know, Shopify isn't really designed uh, or it is kind of designed for visual merchandising, but it's not as advanced as some of the third parties and, you know, it's not going to allow for really complex business logic. So in that scenario, you're much better off kind of taking it out of the platform. And I think that is just a trend that we're seeing. And I think there's a lot of benefits to applying that approach to things. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so so essentially what we're saying, API, and for anybody, sorry about the terminology because some people might be tuning in and not knowing it, we're basically, what's this, I keep forgetting, it's like advanced programmer uh, interface, just yeah. the ability um, to basically put a call in to request a specific piece of data from a system and receive that data back, and then you can decide how you use that data. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's just an effective way of exchanging information between different systems. So we talked about how the fact that a lot of the, the platforms, especially modern SaaS, have moved to API first. Um, now let's move towards the back end with that context in mind and work from back to front. We're not going to talk about legacy systems like ERPs because they are independent to the platform. Well, in most e-commerce platforms, they're independent. Let's. What we're going to start off with is discussion around middleware. And some of you may have come across middleware. So these can be... Um, uh, a, a technology that sits in between your e-commerce um, system and back-end solutions like ERPs, and it facilitates the data exchange between the two of them. And I'm seeing increasingly middleware being used in two ways. Number one is people are going uh, and um, uh, investing in specialist uh, uh, providers like Patchworks, who that's what they do. They provide an integration layer and they have um, proven connectors for different e-commerce platforms, different ERPs, like you know, big commerce to uh, um, um, SAP Business One, for example. Or there are agencies who built their own proprietary middlewares. They might work on one or two platforms. They built their own middleware connector to work across those. So when they are selling solutions into clients, they don't have to bring in a third party. They use their own. Um, and the reason for this, I guess... My, my one point, and then I'll hand over to you, Paul, I know you've done quite a bit of work around uh, with clients and middleware, is, is that basically there are times when you need to change um, uh, the, the data between the two systems because the data formats are not identical. And you have a choice. Where do you do make that change? Do you have to do customization in e-commerce to output things in the right format to get into an ERP? If you try and make changes in ERP, they typically end up being more time-consuming, more costly, more complex, and more risky. I've seen a lot of businesses try to tune and customize an ERP level, and it seems to take a long, long time to get it, and it doesn't always work effectively, and there can be knock-on impacts on the business. You don't want to mess around with your ERP if you don't have to. So the middleware extracts that and avoids you having to do that, and it creates that kind of divorcing of the two systems. Um, that I guess that's my perspective on on why middleware is becoming more popular, especially in SME um, uh, projects. What about you, Paul? What's your take on it? Yeah, I think my view is the same as yours. Like we've worked quite a bit over the last few years with middleware providers. Like before, you'd work with on a build or a replatforming project, you'd work with an agency and they would build all your integrations um, via APIs, and it'd all be you know completely bespoke. Um, whereas now, I think we typically prefer middleware just because it gives you more flexibility. Because you know, once you're downloading all your data into this kind of middleware layer, um, you can essentially you you know clean the data and 
then use it anywhere. Like, you know, it makes it easier to put in a BI platform. You know, um, if you want to change one of your back office systems, you're in a much better position to do it. Um, also, we, we've worked a bit with some of the specialists, in, or not specialists, but, you know, some of the companies that have managed services around these integrations, be it Patchworks or Hikeesian or VLOMNI or whoever else. Um, and I think working with those guys as well, it's like the equivalent of um, to all the other stuff we've talked about around kind of like extracting out best in class. And essentially, you're giving the integrations to a company that's completely independent, only managers integration you know they'll build out the middleware you know add any logic you need if you're you know if you've got any complexity around inventory or whatever else and i think it's just um yeah it's one that de-risks projects and two i just think it's a more modern way of working and you know it gives you that room to like one of the things that we've seen as well is uh, people introducing you know new warehouses or you know multiple stores um using the same stock uh, inventory source and like that piece of middleware just makes everything like that so much easier or like you know it could be like queuing or whatever else um but yeah i just think it's like another layer where you can manage logic for you know to keep that complexity down i think that's it it's keeping complexity and i like, I like the comment you made about future flexibility because one of the big challenges if, if you do point to point between e-commerce and erp uh, if the ERP changes, and I have seen businesses change ERP as a, as you know, could be a massive global expansion, and suddenly the international scene makes the current ERP not fit for purpose, not scalable. You know, the the limitation on multiple warehouses, etc., multiple stock file management, and you suddenly realise the complexity of, of shifting ERPs is huge. It's a massive project to then have to worry about the integration of e-commerce and how you phase that so you don't dis- disrupt your front end commerce and order taking capability being able to do to, to do that independent of the e-commerce so e-commerce can crack on with their own roadmap and not worry about it is is um uh, you know it the it de-risks projects massively um okay so let's move on to another um type of application something i know that you've got way more experience working with me but this is the role of the pim or product information management system and interestingly you started talking about to me about this a couple of years back and I hadn't seen many clients looking at it and now more of my clients when we're having conversations it seems to fit so we're basically talking about a a tool that is specialist around managing product data and it can handle promotions and pricing data from ERP into it to spit out into other catalogs and it seems to work well in in, in the modern SaaS world where there are some limitations around multi-storefront translations, the ability to, to, to have a more robust data model in the PIM where you can put in all of that data at source and it can manage it effectively so you can have a hierarchy for a product with all of the different translated versions and then use their API to fire it into the relevant storefront in e-commerce to avoid you having to do lots of you know, customization or configuration in your e-commerce platform where you t- it typically doesn't do it as effectively as a PIM. So that's my context. So right, I, over to you, what? How are you seeing a PIM being used and why is it being used? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, we've tended to use PIMs a lot for that multi-store front piece, like you say, just so that you can essentially put as much as you can into a PIM and then push it into different stores. Like if you've got six to 10 English speaking stores, you definitely don't want to be doing like CSV, or you might not want to be doing CSV imports. You don't want to be making changes in each of those individual admin instances. So a PIM can make a lot of difference and same with like, you know, imagery and everything think else um but in addition to that i think you know pims usually have um 
uh, kind of different workflows as well um, that can add a lot of value um, in terms of the actual kind of like backend content management and kind of like building out of content. Um, yeah, they'll have things like um, approval layers. Like there's various different kind of like features that can actually benefit the merchandise and our e-com team as well. Um, and in addition to that, you've got the multi-channel piece or like um, some of our clients in the past have had, you know, they've used a PIM to support wholesale and like passing informa- product information out to wholesalers or marketplaces or yeah, any other kind of channels. But I think uh, we've typically seen the benefit, like you say, um, in those kind of projects where people have got five to 10 Shopify stores and they want to manage as much as they can globally. Um, and we've even had clients handle things like the, um, not visual merchandising, but like the sorting of products. So they've built like a bit of logic within the PIM that basically pushes the order of products within collections um, into the stores as well. And um, it's that same thing I was talking about earlier, really. It's kind of like taking stuff out of the platform and just trying to make it more efficient and using something that's best in class. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely an advocate of um, of PIMs. Yeah, I, I'm increasingly so when it comes down to challenge the translation bit because you know, on quite a few platforms, it's really hard to get translated versions of product data working effectively um, yeah, um, in, in those multiple storefronts, but the ability to select which versions of which data just through a simple business rule gets yeah. sent down. And you'd have to worry then the storefront receives only the information it needs. Uh, I think that's really, and the other one was, which I hadn't realised, and you flagged it to me a while back, was promotion scheduling. So there are some platforms where to try and get a promotion to go live in the local time zone in all the countries you want it to, versus in the default time zone of the store, is a real pain. And the ability to do that and be able to specify when something gets sent down to go live, I think there are certain use cases where it really does help, especially when people have got high velocity promotional campaigns. Makes sense. Um, okay, let's go on to the next one, um, CMSs and front ends. So, again, this I think this is definitely an interesting one. I've, I've got a few projects at the moment where because a lot of uh, platform, they're not, an e-commerce platform isn't a CMS. It has um, content management capabilities, and often it's page builder, basically. They're, most of them call it page builder as well, so it's simple drag and drop. But when you start to get, want to do advanced logic of, um, you know, distributed workflows for um, global content teams. You want to have publisher controls. You want to be able to do customized content. You want to uh, create once published to multiple locations. You start adding on what is essentially what modern content teams really, really want. The page builders become much harder and more convoluted to use because you end up duplicating effort. And that's where more people now are using CMSs, and specifically in, in the context of, Maybe the CMS is the front end and it's just using the API to draw the commerce data from um, the e-commerce platform. Or a CMS is being used headlessly like an e-commerce platform is headlessly and there's a specific front end app on top of that as well. So I think it's really interesting that more and more people have turned to the route of, of re-platforming and not just looking at the e-commerce platform. They're looking at getting the right CMS alongside it at the same time. Well, what's your take on this? Yeah, so I think um, I think there's definitely uh, situations where independent CMSs are needed of different levels. Like we've had a few clients that have used Contemptful in a similar way to a PIM, where um, they've essentially managed content and then pushed it into multiple stores, and not necessarily in a headless 
um, manner. I think I'm not usually a massive pro of uh, or a massive fan of headless, but I think that's also just because of the like level of client that we're dealing with, and we've seen a number of people kind of regret going down uh, that route. But equally, I, I have been impressed with some of like the solutions that are being built in that um, kind of market. Um, I just think that usually there's quite a lot to lose as well as uh, kind of gain, I guess, dependent on the brand or business. Um, yeah, and then I think um, I think you've probably done a lot more than I have with some of the more like enterprise solutions like the Epi service of the world that are like true uh, kind of, like you say, content management systems. And, you know, they've got all the kind of workflow management and like complex kind of scheduling and content planning and all of that kind of stuff um most of what we've done has been typically more in platform or using something like contemptful alongside the platform yeah i think when when you've got when you're not heavily content and editorial led on your site and you've got basic content needs then the page builders the visual drag and drop page builders can work really 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 well and you don't need the additional license fees um I think what I've seen with clients is when they want to get a little bit more advanced in the types of content they're using, um, they want to generate more interactive content, they want to rapidly deploy new uh, content formats, so they need to keep building new layouts. They have multiple sites, they've got different editors, they've got different permissions for who can do what and when, they want to schedule publishing, they want to preview in the future to see what it really looks like when that content's due to go. When you start to move to that next level, page builders they don't give you what you want and actually you end up spending more time managing the content than than doing the fun stuff which is the uh, the creating um uh, and coming up with the new campaigns but i agree with you about the headless thing like headless is what it's just a word isn't it at the end of the day it's do you need it i think the the other thing i, I like about some of the headless capabilities you could have a cms that's got headless capabilities but it's also capable of being the front end and therefore you don't have to you just then the, the headless part is the e-commerce application putting the data in so that the CMS can compile all the pages correctly to display all the commerce pages plus all of the pure content pages. What is Ampliance? In a word, it's freedom. The freedom to build a digital experience as limitless as your vision. Create, preview, schedule and manage all your content in one easy place. Find out more at Ampliance.com. Ampliance. Experience freedom. Search and merchandising. I know that's another key area for projects you work on. What are you? How are you seeing people use these versus native capability in a platform? Yeah, so almost all of our clients now use a third party. Quite often, they're not always the same, actually. So um, we obviously work a lot with Clayview, um, but equally we've worked with loads of others like Algolia, Attract, Tagalis, um, Kimonix and the Shopify world, there's loads of others um, out there. I think um, I think it's really important to search. Most people for the last kind of four or five years have uh, used an independent search solution. Merchandising, I'd say, is more of a recent trend. And a lot of people, you know, like Claver and Algolia have got merchandising products, but they're kind of add-ons to the search side, I'd say. Um, 
so recently we've been working a bit with Tagless and then we've also got a few clients using Kimonex. They're both more big commerce and Shopify focused. Um, but I think they're really good for essentially, again, pulling something outside of the platform. Uh, then they basically just push the order of products in by the API to Shopify, but you can build in a lot more business logic. And I think that's how I like to work with the merchandising side. Um, one that we've both been talking about recently, I think that's really impressive is advanced commerce. Um, I really like where that's going. Um, I think obviously like that, uh, Andre is the founder of Attract and a lot of that kind of like uh, kind of business logic management stuff that Attract has always been really strong with has been built into advanced commerce. I think they're, um, they'll bring a lot to this space. Um, although they're still quite new. Um, but yeah, so I think from our side, it's really in an ideal world, that merchandising side, you know, you'd have one platform, again, uh, building logic um, that can uh, essentially manage multiple stores in a, in one global uh, place. Um, so that's typically like the big challenge that we're trying to um, yeah fix for most of our clients. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I've definitely seen this where, where people have typically relied on basic merchandising capabilities in platforms. So, yeah, being able to change the sort order, maybe add a few basic business rules about uh, your prioritise, like show bestsellers. Um, but mainly it's been manual using, I, I guess, in, in, in Magento um, modules like Amnesty, where you can drag and drop. And it's a, I mean, it's a simple interface to use, but it doesn't allow that advanced logic where you can blend... Um, yeah, like you're saying, you can blend the the um, the machine learner piece with business logic on top. You can set cocktails. You can be very micro in your targeting. Um, I think yeah, increasingly more people are going down the route. But, but the interesting bit is whether or not you need an AI and ML tool, or you just need better visual merchandising capability. Because a business that is not getting loads and loads of people um, spending doing lots and lots of sessions therefore has a, a reduced merchandising opportunity and also where if you have very low volume purchase um sorry yeah low volume high average order value you've got less purchase frequency with which to get meaningful learning to make those recommendations and then i start to see a bit of a balance where people shy away they focus on the search piece less on the merchandise and they stick to the visual merchandising and they do more um brand-led um recommendations and associations because they just you just don't get the advantage of an AI tool in that that situation as much. Yeah, I think we've had a lot of clients that have invested in some of these products and just ended up doing everything manually um, and not really using too much of the kind of automation stuff. Um, one thing I would say is um, I think uh, with one of the benefits of headless or some of the more open platforms is that you can you're more likely to be able to do personalized um personalization within the product grid without compromising in another area so like taking the grid out of the platform and having a javascript grid um you know and i think like that's something you see a lot with shopify and big commerce and there are uh, it, it always uh, causes little issues in my experience, but I think that is one um, benefit of having yeah complete access to the server and everything else. Oh, yeah, so you're talking server side. So basically the the e-commerce um, platform already knows which one to put it in for that person because it's done behind the scenes and therefore rather than at runtime in the browser that it's making the change. 
Yeah, or even in the browser, like you're just able to essentially um, kind of say in the past, we've had clients use pre-render and they're able to then serve like a server-side snapshot to Google, for example, um, or like to search engines even. And um, I know that it's debatable around the JavaScript surf and search engines. Um, but yeah, and, and, you know, various other things, you just got more freedom. Um, but I don't think that's that big a thing, to be honest. And again, I feel like personalization is a bit like some of the other areas where it's debatable how much value it really adds for like a certain type of business. Agreed. I think there's, I'm probably going to be, uh, be laughed at for saying this as an e-commerce consultant, but I think personalization is overrated. I'm going to yeah. caveat that, that I have seen a couple of good use cases um where it is being used but a lot of the time it feels like it's it it's basically just repeating the same things to a lot of different people so it doesn't feel personalized it feels very similar to setting up segments and then targeting based on behavioral learning within the segment rather than true one-to-one but anyway that's a discussion for another day uh the next one i find interesting and i'm definitely seeing an uptake in this over the last few years what i I used to see this only in bigger businesses but this customer service customer ticketing so the likes of Zendesk, I know Gorgeous has made like big waves in SaaS world. And I had quite a few businesses that I've worked with who've, who've moved over because they, they found the pricing model to work really well and the, and the capability is good. But I've seen more people thinking about this more accurately. And, it, and the e-commerce driver is we've got to get better management of like inbound inquiries and we've got to have better visibility so that we know how well we're doing and we can measure our service levels, but also that we can get better flows to ensure that we prioritise actions and can act on stuff and don't leave things sat around in inboxes, basically. How, how are you finding Are you seeing an uptake in that or are you just seeing a consistent? Yeah, massively. I think almost all of our clients use like a Gorgeous or a Reamaze or um, I forgot what the other one's called, um, but some of the modern ones that can just do a bit more um, with data. So like they'll pull more data out of all of the other third parties, e-com platform. Uh, it's a lot more automation. They'll push more data into your CRM or ESP. Um, most of them now do WhatsApp as well, which is like a massive requirement for luxury brands. Um, yeah, more kind of like features around international. Yeah, we've definitely seen quite a big um, shift towards these tools. I think um, Zendesk is obviously really good as well, but I think it's just more general and like a lot of our clients partly priced partly uh, just because these tools are a bit more specific to like the SaaS ecosystems and can give you a bit more um, yeah kind of a, a few more features when it comes to like actually understanding the customer and like reporting and all of that kind of stuff yeah I think for me it's just the the, the change in use of it it's before as customer inquiry it used to be forms send us an email and that email will sit in an inbox. It might get replied to you quickly. It might not. But then it's a manual dependency of somebody to decide whether it's prioritised or not. The ability to put flow-based rules in and to shift them to different queues for different people to follow up on based on whether this is, a, you know, you've got a really pissed off customer that needs a serious, okay, let's put them into the hypercare team. So having the ability to flow things, and you can either do that, yeah, in your in these digital systems, or you can have rules where you spit it out into yeah, other systems like CRMs, but just automating processes to take the manual headache away from customer service teams is, is a big benefit to efficiency. Um, let's go on to our last, but by no lean, uh, mean, I can't even speak, means least topic, shipper and shipping and order management. Again, this is an area where in this, this modern e-commerce world, I see more people going down specialist tooling route and less trying to just build everything into an e-commerce platform or just absorb logic from like a warehouse management system into e-commerce. So e-commerce will have 
um, shipping matrices. It needs to have it because it's got to be able to know, you know, where this can be shipped to, what the cost of doing it is, etc. But actually, a lot of business now as they expand either with their service offering or internationally, have a lot more complexity in terms of trying to keep their shipping costs down because it's such a competitive area for business to not charge really high fees but not be so exposed to cost that it becomes prohibitive to manage. So things like volumetric, being able to shave off you know, percentage points from cost by being able to select the right carrier based on the particular bundle of items you've got on the sizing and so that you can save money on your shipping and i'm seeing more and more people looking at the likes of shipper hqs because you you've got the connectivity with the carriers in there but also you've got the ability to build that more complex logic and for it to make the decision for you yeah absolutely i mean i think uh probably less so recently but in the past we've worked with a few businesses that have had really complex requirements around shipping and kind of like logic around where certain products can be shipped and can't be shipped and different like um shipping methods as well like white glove etc and yeah we've worked a bit of shipper hq in particular that's probably the only one we've really worked with um but no i think that's um one that's important and i think a lot of the stuff you just talked about is starting to people are starting to look at it for returns as well um which is an interesting one so offering different like uh returns options and costs and things like that based on what they know about the customer and all of that kind of stuff which is quite um which is quite interesting and the same principle because I think there's quite a lot of cost there that, and, you know, you'll get certain customers that will just return, you know, buy 59 and return 14 and they'll be like a serial returner, et cetera. And I think, um, I think ASOS were the first, weren't they, that started to look at the costs and realize that certain people, they were just hemorrhaging money. And then you layer on like the cost of acquisition and cash back and everything else. And suddenly they're just like, yeah, hemorrhaging money on customers. So I think that would be um, another one that ends up uh, going that way as well. Yeah, and there's definitely been a trend in the last uh, a couple of years towards not just seeing returns uh, as a free um, obligation for everybody. Is like actually the business has got to be profitable if it's going to service its customers, and you you have to you have to provide a great service because that's customer service fee. But you've got to do it in a way that's affordable. And the most important thing is that transparency around it, isn't it? Um, but yeah, and I, I think. I think that that kind of covers that one. So let's the other one which I've been less involved with, to be honest, um, is order management. Um, are you seeing people invest in specialist OMSs, or are you seeing it all being pushed into ERP? Yeah, so I think to be honest, we're not. But I'm actually surprised we're not because it comes up all the time. Um, a lot of our clients don't have ERPs and they're like essentially just uh, cutting corners um, and maybe doing stuff in the e-com platform. Like we've got a client at the moment that's going to end up using essentially have like two fallback warehouses um, on top of their main warehouse and like all of that stuff around how you like efficiently manage all of that should probably be in an OMS um, and some of the multi-channel stuff as well. But to be honest, very few of our clients have had an OMS. They've just kind of like built things into an ERP or, you know, taken the hit and just done things in a very simple way in the e platform. But I'm surprised that we've not seen more clients looking to invest in this area. Yeah, I've had a few interesting discussions on on some projects recently, which were um, like big commerce projects or Magento projects. And in the end, the specialist OMS, it was couldn't get the quite get the cost justification, and they ended up doing the order routing through the existing ERP 
um, which which I often think that, that that's if you have an ERP that can do order routing and you can have some logic in there, that's normally the, the, the starting point. It becomes a lot harder to get all of that or build all that order routing logic into e-commerce because it can be very complex when you've got, especially when you've got the split shipments in B two B is one of the areas that's really hard. If you've got a, a multi level account where you you might have a client who's got six different businesses and people are ordering across businesses and they're shipping to like four or five different locations and you've got to part parcel and split it and you've got to select different stock depending on where it's coming from for different stock holdings. It can soon become really, really. You suddenly realise the ridiculousness of trying to do that in an e-commerce system versus in a special service an ERP. But yeah, I think at the I think the more simplistic models ERPs work really, really well without needing special OMS. And some ERP providers have proper OMS modules anyway. So, um, okay, so that's that's brought us to the end of our, our our discussion for today. Are we missing anything obvious? Is there anything else where you're really seeing? an increase in usage um, alongside the core e-commerce application. Um, I think think the big big ones, like you say, like people are looking at PIMs, people are looking at more specialists like VMing platforms. Uh, BI is another one, to be fair. That's the only other one where I feel like a lot of businesses are starting to invest more in like building out their own reporting stack to make sure that they're kind of getting fully accurate data, et cetera. But no, I think we've covered the main ones that I've seen. Yeah, and I think I think my part and comment for everyone today is is basically going into if you're going into a, a, a platform selection or a migration or a replatform, whatever you want to call it, go in with a very clear definition of what e-commerce means to you and what you want your e-commerce platform to do. Because all the while you start trying to make it to do wider and wider things, you lose your focus. You start trying to get an e-commerce platform that could do all of this, and you're going to be uh, it's fool's gold basically because they don't exist, or if they do, the cost of them is so expensive. Think about the functionality you need and have a very pragmatic conversation about which other systems best in class will work with the e-commerce platform to deliver that so you've got the best possible output and then look at the cost um, efficiency of that versus trying to customise the crap out of something that wasn't designed to do that. I think that's my part in comment. Anything from you, mate? I don't think so. No, I think, um, yeah, it's been an interesting discussion. I mean, yeah, like similar to what you just said, I mean, take stuff out of the platform, you know, rely on specialists. But yeah, no, I don't I don't think anything else to add, really. Cool. So thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope that's been useful and interesting. Um, feel free to challenge anything we said, as always. You know, hit, hit us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Always open for a conversation. Do keep an ear out for the episode for next week. We drop one every Tuesday. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And we would genuinely love a rating on Apple, Spotify or YouTube. Thanks very much and take care. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.